So I wonder if you have ever played the game, Would You Rather? Raise your hand if you know that, uh, if you know what I'm speaking of, Would You Rather? Okay, I want to play it for a moment, and uh, just, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, we'll teach you, it's a pretty easy game, and I just want you to shout out your answer, whatever your answer is, okay? You got me? Sean was telling you to get, what did he say, get weird, get freaky, what did he say? I can't remember, but do it, all right? So get ready here. Okay, Would You Rather? Always say what's on your mind or never be able to speak again. Okay, good. All right, good. Would you rather have the hiccups for the rest of your life or always feel like you need to sneeze but can't? Okay, I got to tell you guys, my, my fear, I got one more for you here, but what my fear all my life uh, has been that I would get like the hiccups and try to preach, and then like I'm hiccuping through the whole thing, and I can't stop. So I like I have this, this horrible fear of that. Okay, would you rather lose your keys or forget your cell phone? Yeah. No, neither wasn't an option. I don't know. Somebody down here doesn't know how to play the game. It's pretty simple. One of the two. All right. Well, you get how this game works. This is what philosophers and scholars refer to as a false dilemma. Specifically, it's called a Morton's Fork, a choice between two equally unpleasant options. There are other kinds of false dilemmas, too. Here's one. Pat Riley, who was the one-time coach for the Lakers and for the Knicks, now he's the president of the Miami Heat, he says this. He says there are only two options regarding commitment. You're either in or you're out. There's no such thing as life in between. Now, that's a nice saying, and it's probably very motivational uh, to players that he is paying, but it's not really true. There are things that I would suspect all of us here are sort of committed to. For instance, I'm sort of committed to eating healthy. I'm sort of committed to drinking enough water every day. And I I was once committed to a low-carb diet until I learned that the word carbohydrate comes from a Latin word which means taste good. Then I gave up on that whole diet quickly. You get the idea, right? A great deal of life is actually not one way or the other, in or out, black or white. A lot of life is actually lived somewhere in between, which is why you need to be very careful when a speaker or a writer or even a friend gives you just two options to choose from. Someone like me, for example, because that's precisely what I'm going to do to you today. Because there are a few situations in life that truly are one or the other, where you only have, where you only have two choices that you can make. And the passage that we're going to look at today is one of those. And I want you to see that. For those of you who are new or just visiting with us, we're in a series on the last days of Jesus Christ from the book of Mark. And if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in the book of Mark to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, I'll meet you there in just a moment. I want to welcome our podcast listeners. I would mention to all of you that City Church has a podcast, excuse me, an app uh, that you can download on your smartphone that allows you to, uh, yeah, listen to our podcast. You can also follow along uh, on our notes on Sunday morning, uh, as well as a bunch of other things that you can do on it. So just a brief word of context on the passage that we're going to look at today. It is Thursday night. It is just hours before Jesus will be crucified. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and all of the disciples have abandoned him. 
Even though they all said that they never would do such a thing. We'll be there with you, Jesus, all the way to the end. Instead, first sign of danger, and they're gone. Now, uh, Jesus is going to go through two, uh, what can only be loosely be described as trials. The first one of which we're going to look at today. And I want to start reading at Mark chapter 14, verse 53, and we'll read through the whole passage, and then I'll make some comments afterwards. Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. By the way, this is, this is what was, uh, this was like the Supreme Court of Israel, and it consisted of about 70 men along with the high priest, who was the religious authority in the land. His name was Caiaphas. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, Caiaphas. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, uh, the Sanhedrin, that's a, that's a word that means assembly. It's the 70 elders. It's the Supreme Court, okay? They were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So this isn't a fair trial. You get that, right? This is a kangaroo court. Okay? But they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, they said, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, just for a moment, I want you to understand Jesus never said, he did say something similar to this, but he did not say that he would destroy the temple. He said it would be destroyed, which it was destroyed uh, in the year 70 AD by the Roman Empire. Okay? But he didn't say he would destroy it. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them, and he asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Uh, the Jewish tradition, by the way, uh, held that to even mention the name of God was uh, was, was wrong because his name was too holy. Uh, so that's why the high priest refers to God here as the blessed one. Are you the blessed? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. This is the traditional Jewish response to blasphemy, to just tear your clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. And they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Let's approach this passage uh, like this so that it will help you understand it. We're going to start with Jesus' three claims. We're going to start with Jesus' three claims. Then we'll talk about our two options. And then we'll conclude with one profound irony. So Jesus' three claims, our two options, and then one profound irony, okay? So we'll start with Jesus' three claims. As I said a moment ago, this trial can only loosely be defined as a trial. In fact, it violated a number of regulations about trials given in the Mosaic Law to the Jewish people in order to ensure justice and to prevent injustice. But they did at least want to make sure that the, witness, uh, that the witnesses' stories corroborated and in light of the fact that they didn't, Caiaphas, the high priest, 
gets so upset that Jesus isn't responding to the false testimony that Caiaphas finally decides to ask him outright, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And in fact, in Jesus' reply, there are three claims that he makes that get him in deeper water than he was in before. And I want you to see these three claims so that you'll understand what's going to come next. First, he claims in verse 62 to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Messiah. Now, this was, this word Messiah, this term, this, this name, uh, designation, Messiah, was and still is a very potent title for the Jewish people in that they longed for the Messiah to come. And, and if you've been with us throughout this series, you probably remember, I've said this on many occasions, that in the minds of the Jewish people, the Messiah was going to lead a mighty army. This is what they thought, that he's going to lead a mighty army to liberate the, pe- the people of Israel from the awesome power of the Roman Empire and then reestablish Israel as the ruling nation of the world. Now, that's, Jesus had a different plan. But no matter how you cut it, the term Messiah was a very potent, it still is, a very potent title for the Jewish people, okay? So number one, he claimed to be the Messiah. Second, he is also claiming to be the son of the blessed one, or in other words, the son of God. He's claiming to be the son of God. And this, this uh, claim that he is the son of God is the ultimate blasphemy as far as the high priest and the rest of the Sanhedrin is concerned because this means that he is saying that he is divine, that he is of the same nature as God, that he is God made manifest in human form. But, but remember this, okay? If you've been with us, remember this, that at Jesus' baptism, back early, you know, those of you who've been with us, uh, uh, who were with us maybe last year as we were doing the first half of the book of Mark, Uh, At Jesus' baptism, God the Father himself refers to Jesus as his son. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Remember? So so God the Father says that about him. And again, at the transfiguration uh, in Mark chapter 9, God the Father also refers to Jesus as his son. Okay? So he's claiming to be divine by saying that he is the son of God. And then third, the third claim that he makes is that he is the son of man, which you can see in verse 62. Now, I want to I read that, uh, that claim, and I want you to notice something very important. Jesus says, I am. He asks him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, pay attention to this, I, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, watch this. Jesus is referring to a passage in the book of Daniel here, uh, it's a very important chapter in that book, chapter 7. And I want you to notice what Daniel writes. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You see the, you see the similarity? Jesus is quoting this. He's referring to this. He approached the ancient of days, this son of man, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language Notice, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is claiming to be this son of man that Daniel is talking about, who can be led into God's presence. Who can be led into God's presence? Who can dwell on God's holy hill? Only God could do that. Who is given dominion? Who do people worship? Only God. 
Now, in this room, I have to point this passage in Daniel 7 out, but believe me, in the room that uh, Jesus and uh, the Sanhedrin and the high priest are in, uh, you would have never had to point that out. They were Old Testament scholars. They knew this Daniel 7 reference like the back of their hand. And so this son of man that Daniel refers to is one who will, uh, he will come to earth in triumph. And Daniel goes on to talk about the fact that he will act as a judge of all humanity. And so Jesus is saying, I am who Daniel was prophesying about. And do you realize, do you realize the implications of that to this high priest? Jesus is saying, right now you're judging me, dude, but one day I'm coming back and I'm going to be judging you. (laughs) Now that's what infuriates the high priest. That's what causes the place to go nuts. Those are, three, those are Jesus' three claims, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that he is the Son of Man that Daniel refers to in Daniel chapter 7, who will come to judge uh, the earth. Okay, now that we've seen those three claims, I think it'll make sense to you why I say that we have two options, okay, in response to those three claims that Jesus makes. Only two options, Okay. I want you to look for just a moment, as we begin to talk about our two options, I want you to look for just a moment at how explosive Jesus' claims are. As soon as he answers that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man, who will one day judge humanity, the place explodes. All hell breaks loose in that room, and I mean that quite literally. Look at their actions. They spit on him, the ultimate sign of humiliation in that culture. They beat him with their fists. The guards take him, take him away. To beat him. This is a purely evil response to this man whom they have witnessed themselves do miracles that fulfilled biblical prophecy. It's an evil response to him. Jesus claims about himself, those three claims are so explosive that they leave us really with only Two options regarding him. As soon as he makes these claims, he starts shutting down options that you have, only getting us down to two options. We only have two options in response to that claim. One is to kill him. One is to kill him. And this is the option that the Sanhedrin chose. But I have to tell you that many people kill him. Uh, Of course, not, not physically, but many people today kill him uh, intellectually, they, you know, they, they just stick in the, a fork in the idea that Jesus could be who he says he is, and they refuse to ever entertain it again. Or, or maybe they set out to prove the, that the stories of Jesus are just myths, or they deny the resurrection of Jesus, and they make sure that, that Jesus uh, stays dead. That's a way to kill him, at least in your own mind. And there are many people today who do that. So you can kill him. That's one option. The only other option that you have is to crown him. You can either kill him or you can crown him. And when I say crown him, in other words, what I I mean is to fall down 
and to worship him, to make your entire life revolve around him, to make him Lord of your life in the manner that he is the Lord of the universe, to give up anything that is necessary to follow him, to know him, to become like him, no matter what the cost to you, to go anywhere he wants you to go, to say anything he wants you to say, to do anything that he wants you to do. What other response? If you're not going to kill him, what other response would be reasonable? He is the one who claims to be the subject and the object of life. He claims to be the center of the universe. He claims to be the Lord of all creation. He claims to be your creator. He claims to be the eternal God. He claims to be the judge of all of humanity. He claims to be the savior of the world. What other response would seem reasonable to someone like that? Flannery O'Connor has a great little story. Uh, it's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And in this story, there is a, there's a killer that is named the Misfit. He's a wanted fugitive, and he finds this family. Uh, I think they're out on a picnic, and uh, he starts killing them off one by one until only the grandmother is left. And in desperation, the grandmother tries up, you know, she's watched everybody else be killed. And in desperation, she tries preaching to him and and she tells him that that Jesus will help him if if he will just pray to him. And he replies with this very startling statement. We put it up here on the screen for you. He goes like this. He says, he's thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. Now, do you get what he's saying? He's he's saying the same thing that we're saying here, that you've only got two options. One One is to kill him. The other is to crown him. By the way, do you do you know what do you know what the misfit chose with respect to the grandmother in that story? Any of you know? Uh, maybe I should go back. Maybe I should make you go and, and read the story for yourself so that you can find out. But I, 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 I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, he kills the grandmother after saying that, which was his way of killing Jesus. You either have, you have two options. You either have to kill him or you have to crown him in response to the three claims that he makes about himself, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that he is the Son of Man. You just don't have any other options. It's either, it's either kill him or crown him. His claims are so explosive that they leave us no middle ground. There are no half measures as it relates to Jesus. Now, I will tell you, There are all sorts of ways that people try to create a middle ground, like somewhere between kill him and and crown him. Um, But but it's not tenable, right? There there is no middle ground. It's either kill him or crown him. There's no no middle ground. And I, I do not want you to fool yourself into thinking that it's only agnostics or people who uh, maybe they wouldn't even consider themselves to be agnostics, but they would just say that they're unsure about Jesus. I don't want you to think that they're the only people that are guilty of this. There are many people who have crowned Jesus, yet still try to create a middle ground of commitment that just isn't tenable. You can't do it. 
And in fact, one of the most dangerous is the very cavalier attitude that many people who have crowned Jesus have toward worshiping him. Some of you just drop into church to worship Christ like every so often when you don't have anything else more important going on. Now, listen, don't make me out to be legalistic. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about missing a Sunday every so often for whatever reason. I'm, I'm talking about the fact that some of you only make a Sunday every so often. And that isn't logically consistent with Christ's claims. Because what you're trying to do, you see, is to fit uh, Christianity into your life instead of fitting your life into Christianity. You see the difference? Some of you are trying to fit Christ into your life instead of fitting your life into Christ. Now, I'm going to say something that um, is going to hurt and is possibly going to anger some of you. But I hope you know that as I say this, that I am not trying to anger you, and I'm not trying to anger you. I'm trying to help because I care about you. So I'm going to say something that, you know, just get ready. It's going to hurt some of you, uh, and it's going to anger some of you. In every church that I've pastored or been on staff at, I have listened to parents tell me that they and their kids have a hard time getting to church because they've put their kids into select sports leagues that require them to travel over the weekend to get to the games. Now, don't misunderstand me. I get why parents do that. I know they're, I know, I know they're good parents. I know they're not trying to hurt their kids. They're, they're, they're really trying to help their kids. They're good parents. But I want to tell you what often happens. Those very kids grow up, and they end up not really caring about Christianity and attending church. This is, I believe, one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons, that the 18 to 35 age group is largely absent in churches these days, because the unintended consequence of their parents' choices is that they've learned that sports leagues are more important than worshiping Christ. Now look, if you're a parent who's made that decision in the past, or maybe you've made the decision now, I, listen, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to beat you up. I, I hope you hear that. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade. And, and, and when you see me, don't feel like you have to make up a bunch of reasons why you chose to put your kids in those sports leagues. That's your decision. Maybe no one ever challenged you about it in the past. I get it. I understand. But for those of you who either have children too young to play in leagues yet or who don't yet have children but want to in the future, I want to encourage you to think long and hard about this before you get there. Amy and I, uh, my wife Amy and I, we both love sports. She grew up in a sports family. Her brother is a head football coach in Texas at a large uh, high school. Do you know how Texas treats football? Do you know how they do that? I mean, it is like a huge thing. It's crazy, okay? And then I grew up playing sports and watching sports, and I still love sports, and I'm, and, and I'm only now getting close to giving up my dream of playing Major League Baseball. I love sports. And our kids love sports, and they were, 
they were athletic and, and they played soccer and baseball and basketball and football and probably some sports I'm not even thinking of right now. But early on, Amy and I made two conscious decisions that have served uh, us and, and served our kids well. And, and by the way, I want you to know, you, you don't normally hear me talk about something that, that, uh, that we do well or that I do well uh, or that we as parents do well because I think, you know, that gets tiresome to hear pastors talk about that. And plus, I can't really name that many things that I did well. But this is, we did make two conscious decisions that have served us and our kids well. One was we made the decision that they could only play one sport per season. And the reason is you get so busy going to practices and games, let alone other school events, that you literally, if you did more than that, you literally would never see each other. Okay, so that was, that was one decision. The other decision that we made was that we decided that we would not put our kids in select sports leagues that traveled over the weekend because we thought that no matter how successful they were in sports, sports would only last them really, a relatively short time in their lives. But a relationship with Christ would last them a lifetime and an eternity. And so we wanted them to understand that mom and dad's lives revolve around Christ, not Christ around our lives, which meant that as a family, we were going to be in church on Sundays, most Sundays. And again, we were, listen, we weren't legalistic about it. Our kids miss church sometimes, maybe even, maybe even for a rare game that happened on a Sunday. But we weren't, we, we weren't freaks about it. We just didn't want it to become a regular thing for us. Now, I know, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, well, sure, you're a pastor, so your kids had to be in church. And I would say to you, au contraire, Pierre. We never, we never allowed anyone's preconceived ideas about what our kids should be like and, and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. We never allowed those things to dictate to them or to us what our kids had to do or couldn't do. It was our decision and completely our decision for the well-being of our kids and no one else's. And make no mistake, this was not a popular decision in our home during middle school and high school. And it was not popular with other parents and uh, some coaches who tried to pressure us into it. I mean, you have to understand where we lived and the level of competition. One kid on my son's soccer team had his own speed coach when he was eight years old. My oldest son played high school basketball and football with Corey Coleman, who was drafted 15th overall in the NFL draft this year by the Cleveland Browns as a wide receiver. So understand, it was a very competitive area, and it wasn't a popular decision for us. But at some point, I had to make a choice. Could I be okay if my sons weren't the best high school athletes in their school? Because sometimes, folks, let's just be honest, that's really what it's about sometimes, isn't it? It's about us as parents. So would I be okay? And then, and then would my sons be okay in the long run? And it, and it was hard for us to make this decision and stick to it. But, but we decided ultimately yes to both. I want those of you who are young parents, I want you to know that you will experience enormous pressure to put your kids in travel leagues. But I want you to be able to think about this ahead of time 
And think about the message that you're sending to your kids. Does it make sense to say to the Lord of the universe, look, we want to crown you and all, but we'll worship you in the place that you are so closely identified with that you call it your body. We'll worship you when we don't have kids' sports leagues to go to. I think you'll agree with me that that's an untenable middle ground. You're trying to fit Christ into your life rather than fit your life into Christ. Now look, I can imagine that in what I just said that I have made some of you angry. And maybe you're so angry that you're thinking this is going to be the last week uh, that you ever attend City. And Uh, I want you to know, I'm I'm quite sure that you can find other churches in town who won't say what I just said. Not because they don't think it. They do. Believe me. We all talk about it. But they won't say it because they're afraid they will lose you. But I'm sorry. That's not how I understand my calling. My calling is to tell you what is good for you regardless of whether you leave us or not. But know this, that when I do that, I do it because I care about you and I care about your kids. So just be clear of what I'm saying here. Whether it's because of kids' sports leagues, and there's all, uh, there's all sorts of other reasons people you know, drop in and out of church when they have time. It could be the weather. It could be your lake house, whatever. I'm saying that dropping into church to worship Christ when it's convenient for you is an untenable position to be in if you believe that Jesus is Lord of the universe. You either have to kill him or you have to crown him, and you may have to make everything about your life revolve around him. To try to make him fit into your life is an untenable middle ground. It just is. So we've looked at three claims that Jesus made. And we've looked at our two options in response to Jesus' three claims. And I want to close with one profound irony. Uh, Pastor and author uh, Tim Keller tells a story about an old teacher of his who preached a sermon in which uh, he referenced a play that was written in Germany right after World War II, and the play was called The Sign of Jonah. Right after World War II was over, the German people uh, began to realize the magnitude of the Holocaust. And it created a crisis in their society because the question was, who should be going on trial for this? Somebody needs to go on trial for this. And so in the play, when they go to the common people and they say to them, you should be on trial for what happened, the common people say, no, 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 it's not us, it's the soldiers, they knew. So then when they go to the soldiers and say, you should be on trial, the soldiers say, oh, no, 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 no. We just took orders. It's the people above us. And then they go to the people above them. Oh, no, 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 no. It shouldn't be us. We should go on trial. It's the people above us. So everybody in the play gets out of what they deserve by pointing to someone else and saying, no, those other people should go on trial. But near the end of the play, 
Suddenly, everybody realizes, we know how we can get out of this, they say. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. He could have stopped it. He let this happen. He created a world in which this happened. And so, in the play, they sentence God. They find God guilty. They put him on trial. They find him guilty, and they sentence him. And they said, they said this, this was the sentence, let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless, hungry, and thirsty. Let him die, and when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. So they did the atrocities to the Jewish people, but they said, we'll blame God. Well, Keller's uh, teacher concluded by saying this. Here's what he said. Do you realize when they pass this sentence what they're doing? They're demanding God pay for their sins. How unjust. Yet God in his perfect righteousness and grace has done even more than the arrogance of our cursing dares demand. Do you realize that? In our arrogance, we demand that God come and be judged for the sins that we did. And he has done that in a way that is beyond anything that we even imagined. Do you see the profound irony here in this passage? Here is Jesus the judge of all the earth, who is not judging all the earth in this passage, but who is being judged by the very people who deserve to be judged. There's been an enormous reversal here. He should be in the judgment seat, and we should be the ones in chains. He should be the judge, and we should be the ones on trial. But instead, in this passage, we, represented by these men, uh, these uh, religious men, we're the judges, and he's on trial. Instead of coming and smiting us, the judge of all the earth has come, and he has borne the judgment for our sins on the cross in our place so that we can be adopted by grace. And that, my friends, is the single most profound irony in all of human history. I hope you don't miss that. This morning, you can either kill Jesus or you can crown Jesus. My personal hope and prayer is that you will crown him and that you will make him the Lord and Savior of your life. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus, uh, how ironic that the judge of all the earth would be willing to be judged by the very people who deserve to be judged themselves. There is no religion in the world that proclaims anything like this because no man could ever come up with such an idea. No man would dare to have such an idea that that God would become man and be willing to submit himself to being judged for our sins. No one would ever think about that. 
But Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you did. You were judged by us and for us. And you went to a cross for our sins. I pray, Lord, this morning that there would be people who would make for the first time in their life a decision to crown you as the Lord of their lives, as the Savior of their lives, and that they would begin to fit their entire life into you. Lord, for those of us who have crowned you, there are many ways that we, uh, that we, don't, uh, we don't live as if, as if we've crowned you. Lord, I pray that you would be transforming those areas of our lives, even the way that we go about worshiping you commitment we have to that so that we begin to fit all of our lives into you. Lord Jesus, these truths are too great for us to understand in some ways. They're they're too great for us to, to really be able to meditate on in a way that brings out all of the glory of these truths. But Lord Jesus, your spirit take these truths and drive them deeply home into the hearts of every person here and I pray that you would do that including my heart it's in your name Lord Jesus Christ that we worship this morning and that we pray